The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. This is Squawk Box, and these are your headlines. U.S. stocks snap three days of declines as investors await more clarity on the Fed's fight against inflation ahead of the Jackson Hole Summit later today. U.S. President Joe Biden makes good on a campaign promise cancelling student debt for millions just a week before the end of a moratorium on payments and interest. Tesla shares will begin trading under a new three-for-one basis as the EV giant undergoes its second stock split in two years. And Germany turns out the lights, announcing a raft of new measures to cut gas consumption by 2% this winter. Here I am at the wall to give you a quick update then on what's happened on the market session uh, through the last 24 hours. And what's very notable, of course, and it'll all stand out to you, is that we have green across the three major U.S. indices. And it snapped this three-day losing streak. Ultimately, the market's inclined to be a little bit more positive or at least a bit more thoughtful going into the uh, Jackson Hole Summit that butt ends the week, of course, and has investors on tender hooks as they wait to find out exactly how Jay Powell feels about the latest data that we're seeing. And I know there are lots of uh, commentators out there who think that ultimately um, the Fed is going to struggle here to achieve, I think, what Rabobank called the fairy tale of ultimately tackling inflation without generating a recession. But I think the tone of the markets yesterday suggests that there are still a lot of investors out there who are optimistic that the Fed can actually pull this off. And I think yesterday's numbers helped obviously by the fact that valuations have improved as a result of the declines over the last three days, but also encouraged by some of the data coming out of the technology sector that wasn't terrible. And we'll talk about NVIDIA and we'll talk about um, some of the other uh, tech companies that have been reporting recently, just to give you an indication of what we mean here. But I think it is notable that as you look at these indices on a percentage basis, it is the Nasdaq that actually outperformed through the session yesterday. That notwithstanding, given the spike in yields that we also saw, and uh, quite a lot of dramatic action on the uh, Treasury market through the last 24 hours, not only uh, uh, the sovereign state side, but the, the sovereigns in Europe as well, and we had a significant inversion move again for the UK and the United States. Um, I think I've scribbled down here on my notes that we are flirting again with eight-week highs as far as the 10-year note is concerned. But look at the yields here. Look at the yields. This is what's important, the fact that we saw this sell-off at the short end and ultimately 
Yields pop up to 3.38% here and the five-year note above the 10-year note in yield terms. And of course, for those of you who, who maybe are just joining us, catching up with financial markets, wanting to educate yourself as we head towards what potentially could be a very difficult recessionary period, the fact that we see yields like that implies that the market is already pricing in a recession. When you get this so-called inversion, it tells you that the market is concerned about economic conditions. Let's have a look at the dollar crosses because, again, you know, there's been a lot of action around the U.S. currency. Uh, dollar yen, we can see the greenback just easing back a, a touch at this stage here. Um, it, it goes counter to the broader trend that we've seen actually through recent months here. Um, just one point on the dollar yuan. I thought very interesting. We, we're probably going to talk quite a bit on the program this morning about this 19-point plan that we've had from the Chinese administration to stimulate the economy. And whilst in the announcement, if you pick through the points of the announcement, there is a lot of money that was previously committed. Um, it, it's money that's going to uh, be pushed back into infrastructure. All those old things that the Chinese government does does when it worries about economic growth and employment and it tries to pump up the economy again. To what extent is the government now perhaps putting its, its aim of deleveraging on the back burner as it seeks to address not only some of the protests that we're now seeing emerge around these COVID lockdown programs, but also attempts to address concerns that livelihoods are falling, the property market is declining, and people are getting worried about their jobs. So interestingly, yesterday, we also saw, according to sources, Chinese regulators go to some of the banks and urge them to also stop selling yuan. And the reason they would do that, of course, is because they are concerned about any imported inflation. And it also makes it much harder to meet your interest uh, payments when it comes to uh, foreign currency commitments. WTI, Brent and gold, the holy trinity, as it were. So spot gold, I think, reflecting some of that risk aversion and also some of the latent weakness we've seen in the greenback here. People perhaps using the opportunity of a little bit of greenback weakness to top up their gold positions. Uh, Brent crude, WTI crude, all week we've been dancing to the tune of exactly what the Saudi authorities are intending to do with supplies here. And I think the, the market continues to be incredibly focused on that OPEC plus story at this stage. And that perhaps explains why we have some firming of oil through recent trading sessions. Asian markets, um, I mean, the real drama, quite honestly, was in Hong Kong. And we, we are back to trade here, but I think it was a, a difficult morning in Hong Kong because of the typhoon issue out there. Um, the Nikkei 225, um, three quarters of 1%, as you can see, the Shanghai Composite up four tenths of 1%. And I should just step away and show you how we're doing on the uh, S&P ASX, the Australian market, um, given that there does seem to be a slightly firmer under pinning to the commodities play this morning. I suspect, as I say, a lot of that is about the greenback, but also this flip 
towards a little bit of risk-taking that we have seen through the last 24 hours, of course, driven by the U.S. markets. So what's going on? Scott Cronut joins us. He's a U.S. equity strategist at Citi. Scott, good morning to you, and thanks for being with us at, at this hour. Let me ask you then, uh, we had three weekdays for U.S. indices, but it flipped yesterday. Why, and what do you think that tells us about positioning going into Jackson Hole? Okay, so let's set it up, right? So we've been focused on the market bottom uh, in the S&P 500 in the mid-June timeframe. Uh, that corresponded with a peaking in the 10-year yields. Um, over the succeeding few weeks, we got um, approaching a 15% rally as we got um, signs of sentiment shifting towards a less hawkish Fed outcome, if you will. But at the same time, married with stronger than many expected earnings with Q2 earnings reports. So essentially what you did in our vernacular is, is you pushed the index through our year-end target, which has been 4,200 for some time. And what that did implicitly was set up for um, the risk of incremental hawkishness coming back and, and, and having a negative impact on the index. So what we've seen over the past week or so has been roughly a 4% 4 decline in the S&P, a little bit more than that in the NASDAQ. And in, in our view, that's, that's most likely in anticipation of this week's expected commentary by the Fed governor out of the Jackson Hole Symposium. Where does that now leave us in terms of valuations based on your framework? Are we close to fair value? We think around here, you're pretty close to fair value. You're, pay, you're paying roughly 20 times trailing earnings, um, a little bit more than that on forward earnings. But the point we've been making here is that it's pretty clear in our view that out-year earnings estimates are overly optimistic and will um, continue to come in as we go through the, the last four months of the year. So a higher stock market now is going to end up being uh, triggering a higher valuation or multiple um, perspective around that. And so essentially what you have happening here is the, the longer you remain higher, the more you increase the valuation risk as we get closer to 23 earnings expectations. Um, I thought what was, what was fascinating in the earnings that we've seen so far is if, if you took energy out of the mix, actually earnings would look pretty weak across the other segments of the S&P 500 and yet energy really only contributes about 4% to the overall basket here. T to your point about earnings, um, how perhaps myopic is the market at the moment on the underlying weakness more broadly across corporate America? Well, I think the market actually has been pretty rational about this. You've seen the most negative impact so far this year on the consumer side of the market, particularly um, consumer discretionary and uh, communication services right behind it, which captures some of the internet plays. And essentially the way we're looking at it is that the consumer should be the first focal point of negative impact to rising rates and, and ongoing inflation concerns. And that's kind of played out. Energy, of course, has been its own story this year. And to your point, let's call it a 4% index weight, but it's going to contribute you know, upwards of 10% of, of in index earnings this year. That should probably flatten out and go down next year. And so what we're watching here is for a series of earnings expectation pivots, if you will. As good as energy has been this year, 
probably won't be an incrementally larger contributor next year, but actually may be made up by other sectors of the market. Let me ask you about tech specifically, Scott, because we, we saw um, outperformance in percentage terms from the NASDAQ yesterday. But as we look at uh, some of the tech-related businesses that reported, um, NVIDIA uh, Q2 revenue is pretty much in line, but the market didn't really like the guidance very much going forward. Um, generally, it seems the market's been trying to look through some of the, the, the weaker guidance it's been getting from the technology stocks but <clears throat> specifically with technology at the moment how appropriate do you think current levels are uh, uh, especially given uh, what we've seen with the um, short end of the treasury curve okay so um again the, the setup here is really important and telling for the how the current action is playing out so our point you know since the you know the first quarter time frame has been that that initial shift in rising rates from you know negative one percent real to something in a more positive approaching one percent a couple of months back um, had its biggest negative multiple impact on the growth side of the market and tech in particular. So essentially, um, as you look at the first half negativity in the S and P, there's been pretty clear dispersion between the performance of the growth side of the market and the value side of the market. So essentially what we've argued for some time now is that the negative um, multiple comp consequence of rising rates is mostly priced in, but you're still gonna get volatility around short-term movements in this regard. We've been underweight tech for the better part of this year, but most recently we've begun to get a little bit more constructive on the software space, a little bit less so constructive on the semiconductor space. Ultimately, the way we think this plays out is that the growth components of the U.S. equity markets potentially show defensive characteristics as we go into recession reality in the first half of next year. So we're still cautious for now, but we're leaning incrementally down the growth path, which has technology read-throughs ultimately. Got you. Um, one of the sectors that's been perplexing for me, and, and, and I hope you can unravel this for me, is why healthcare has been such a weak performer recently. Um, it was one of those sectors that has delivered on uh, second quarter earnings, at least positive earnings growth, and yet it's not been very loved uh, since we, we came out of the pandemic. Now, I don't think it is about the pandemic, um, but what do you think is going on with healthcare, and is it attractive? Well, I think healthcare has been our preferred sector overweight uh, for the better part of this year. And so, yes, we're, we're feeling the, the, the recent relative underperformance. Again, I put it in the same context. Healthcare has a couple of interesting attributes from our perspective. It's classically defensive in terms of its economic sensitivity, if you will, but also carries its own um, interesting dispersion of growth characteristics within the sector. So essentially what we think is unfolded here is that you had very strong relative outperformance through the first part of the year. As you went into the rally off of those June lows, if you will, that tended to be more classically risk on. And so an inherently defensive, less economic sensitive sector like healthcare is it's not surprising to see it lag doesn't change our, our interest in, in the sector, again, from an ongoing play for combination of defensive and growth characteristics as we work our way to, towards this recession scenario in the first half of next year.
Yeah. Scott, it's been a pleasure catching up. Thanks for helping us out this morning. Scott Cronut, the US equity strategist at Citi. Um, we've had a big announcement from Novartis. Let's have a look at Novartis' uh, share price here. Um, so it's not, it's not been bad, has it, across the year, but you're basically flat, flat to positive on a one-year story. So it'll be interesting to see how the market plays out this latest news because Novartis is taking steps here to realize value from its holding in Sandoz. Now Sandoz is a uh, business in the pharma space. Um, it provides uh, medicine for, for mental health conditions. Um, it, it, it's uh, in the generic space. And the news this morning, um, Novartis announcing the intention to separate the Sandoz business to create a standalone company by way of a 100% spin-off. Now, the um, strategic review into Sandoz concluded that a separation by way of this 100% spin-out is in the best interests of shareholders when it comes to realizing the potential future upside of both Sandoz and Novartis and the innovative pipelines that both businesses are developing. Sandoz is planned to be incorporated in Switzerland and will be listed on the six Swiss exchange, that is the name of the exchange, um, with an American depository receipt or ADR as it's known program in the United States. So that will give us, uh, give our friends across the Atlantic the opportunity to participate in that 100% spin-off the company goes on to say completion expected in the second half of 2023. The transaction is expected to be generally tax neutral for Novartis and is subject to market conditions, tax rulings and opinions, final board endorsement and shareholder approval. So keep a very weathered eye on Novartis trade this morning and I'll also see if we can uh, uh, continue to monitor this story and uh, bring you any um, investment banking analysis of this step because everybody now in those banks will be woken up by their alarm clocks told to get to their computer and told to update their DCF models and calculate exactly what a sum of the parts valuation for Sandoz means for both um, uh, Novartis shareholders and any future participants in a Sandoz spin-off. So stepping away from the story, and um, you'll be pleased to know that Juliana will join us a, a little later on programming. Um, this is very much in her wheelhouse, and I'm sure she'll also be looking at valuations even as I speak. Uh, CNBC will be on the ground in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, as the symposium there kicks off later today. We will hear from several key policymakers, including Fed Governors Patrick Harker, James Bullard, Raphael Bostic and of course the Fed Chair Jerome Powell. Uh, he has a highly anticipated keynote speech on Friday at 1600 Central European time. Meanwhile the drumbeat of tighter monetary conditions continues around the world. The Bank of Korea hiked its base rate by 25 basis points to two and a half percent in line with expectations. It also upgraded its inflation outlook to 5.2% for the year, 
That is up from 4.5%, marking the fastest rate since 1998. Meanwhile, Bank of Japan board member uh, Toyaki Nakamura says the central bank must maintain its ultra-loose monetary policy. The country facing a surge in COVID cases as well as slowing global demand. He said shifting to a monetary tightening stance in line with many economies around the world would hurt the uh, Japanese economy and restrain household and business activity. Big news for students in the United States. The president has fulfilled one of his campaign pledges ahead of the November midterm election. Financial relief for many university graduates, Americans making less than $125,000, will have $10,000 of student loan debt wiped out. We'll take the break. Dimmer streets and colder nights. Is that what is in prospect for Germany? as users are under pressure to cut consumption. We'll be right back, everybody. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Kiev says 22 civilians were killed by Russian missiles on its Independence Day, including 21 at a railway station. Wednesday marked six months since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. President Zelensky had warned of possible brutal attacks by Russian forces and cancelled all public celebrations. Russia has denied targeting civilians. NBC's uh, Megan Fitzgerald filed this report from Kiev. Tonight, six months after it launched its invasion, Russia showing no signs of letting up. These images from a railroad station where Ukraine says a Russian strike killed at least 22 people. This morning, air raid sirens in Kyiv, though no attack. The mayor telling us the city could once again be a Russian target. Any second, any minute, the Russians' rockets can land in any building. As Ukraine marks its Independence Day, painful reminders of the cost of war. A short drive from the capital, we arrived in Bucha. More than 450 Ukrainian civilians were killed here in the early days of the war. Russian soldiers accused of war crimes. People come to cemeteries to remember those they've lost. But here in Bucha, where hundreds are buried, grave sites are marked by numbers only. Names will never be known. Then there's Mariupol, now under Russian control. Ukrainian soldiers held out for weeks in a steel plant. Marina Schumacher's husband was one of them, a mother of two young boys. She spoke in April to NBC's Kelly Kobieya. They all want to live, she said. We followed up with Marina today. She says her husband was captured by the Russians, but she hasn't heard from him since. I don't know how to live without him, she said. We were together 27 years. Are you scared? 
Yes, she said. I'm scared. Here in Kyiv, President Zelensky is still warning that the city could come under attack in the coming days. French President Emmanuel Macron met with his cabinet for the first time after the summer break, vowing to make, quote, bold and clear choices to speed up France's environmental transition. The country has been battling a number of natural disasters, including wildfires and drought. The government also warning energy prices could surge further as Russia's war in Ukraine continues. President Macron said there will be a cost when it comes to defending the country and France's way of life. Our freedom and the free system of government that we're all used to living with comes at a cost. Sometimes when you have to defend it, it could imply making sacrifices, or at least to see through the battles that need to be waged. The situation that we live in comes at a cost. Our freedoms and the challenges that we take on, be they cultural, civilizational, but also technological and financial, will only be won through our own efforts. President Macron. Well, Germany will prioritize its rail networks for materials and equipment vital for energy production in the event that shipping is halted by low water levels in the Rhine. Gas shortages in Germany have increased the country's use of coal in the manufacturing sector. Meanwhile, Germany is stepping up its energy rationing plan ahead of the winter. Beginning on September 1st, public buildings, with some exceptions like hospitals, can only be heated to 19 degrees Celsius and will not be allowed to be illuminated for aesthetic purposes from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. Heating uh, corridors and foyers will also be outlawed as well as heating private swimming pools. Well, Sylvia joins us uh, with more on this story here. And Sylvia, I would have thought that the illumination of buildings for aesthetic purposes should have been stopped a long time ago, given how concerned we are about conserving energy. But tell us a little bit more about these measures and how hard they are likely to impact Germans. You're right, Jeff. It seems that we're just now seeing uh, Germany taking the first steps, really, in terms of considering how to use energy and how to save their gas storage levels. But let me just break down some of these measures. First and foremost, they will be implemented as of September the 1st, so starting next week. And as you mentioned, they include things such as for public uh, buildings, except hospitals, though temperature will be set at no more than 19 degrees Celsius. Monuments, as you mentioned, will also not be lit during the night for aesthetic purposes. Then as well for corridors, they, the expectation is that there will be no heating in those places. And shops across the country will also be asked to switch off their lights during the night. So these are just a couple of measures, of practical measures, that Germany is putting in place. Let's take a listen at uh, some of the comments from the economy and climate minister, Robert Havoc, explaining these new steps. Public buildings will no longer be illuminated from 10 p.m. until 6 a.m. Illuminated advertising will also be banned from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. So a number of measures will be taken to get energy consumption down. The sum of the measures will save energy, but not so much that we can sit back and say that's it now. They will reduce gas consumption by about 2 to 2.5%. So that means we still have a long way to go. 
Robert Havoc there. He also said yesterday that these new measures are roughly accounting to about 10 billion euros of savings over the next two years. But here, Jeff, it remains to be seen whether Germany will actually need to come up with new steps in this regard, because the minister, the economy minister, also hinted that they still have a long way to go in terms of energy consumption, in terms of conserving some of those gas storage levels. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.